BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle mull over a coronation invite. Chris Rock and Rebel Wilson take swipes at the Sussexes. And Prince Harry bears his soul during a Q&A for spare. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. Now, the official invites may not have gone out yet, but Harry and Meghan know that they are invited to the coronation because they have had an email from King Charles's office. Now, not a phone call from Charles personally, I should add, but an email from his office. Uh, Now, it's not a huge surprise that they've been invited. It was always very likely that they would be. But one thing that is interesting is Harry and Meghan have not said whether they will go. In fact, their spokesperson said an immediate decision on whether the Duke and Duchess will attend will not be disclosed by us at this time. So there are a couple of possible explanations here for what's going on. Firstly, that statement does not actually say that they haven't decided. It just says no decision will be disclosed at this time. So it is actually possible they may already know they're going to go, but just don't want to tell anybody for security reasons. Now, that might sound like a strange thing to say, but what you have to remember is that if you are working in an environment where you believe that you are under threat from possible terrorist attacks, then in order for a terrorist to attack you, they need to know where you're going to be and they need to know when. So it's very helpful to terrorists if you tell them, I'm coming to the coronation in two months time. And you know, this is the date that it's happening on. Um, So it could well be actually that they just have some advice to basically keep any kind of formal announcement under wraps for as long as possible, because that would then reduce the time that anybody who might want to harm them would have to plan an attack. But that is not the only possibility. It's also possible, for example, that they are holding out for assurances from the Metropolitan Police that they will get police bodyguards when they're in Britain. Uh, I suspect that they probably would for the official coronation events to which they had been formally invited by the king. So this was the system that was in operation At the Platinum Jubilee last year, they got police bodyguards when they went to formal Platinum Jubilee events that they'd been invited to and at no other time. As a result, they didn't leave Frogmore Cottage except for the two official events they were invited to. They had Lily's birthday at home in Frogmore and didn't step out the front door for any other reason. So they might basically be in the same situation again. They clearly don't feel that they're safe without those police bodyguards. So if the police were to refuse, then perhaps they would, under those circumstances, choose not to come. But there are, of course, some other issues too. So there are so many plates spinning here that I really do think this is probably the toughest decision that Harry and Meghan have had yet in terms of when to come to Britain, whether to come to Britain or not. So, you know, the Platinum Jubilee was a tough call but also it was kind of a no-brainer because, you know, it's once in, once in a 70 years moment. 
uh, celebrating the Queen. Harry and Meghan have always said that they had no problem with the Queen. Uh, it would, you know, the rift was with other family members, and they always, you know, were very vocal in celebrating the Queen and her reign. So it was, you know, always really probably a no-brainer that they would go to that. However, when they did go, they did get booed at St Paul's Cathedral. They got cheered as well, sure, but they did also get booed. Um, so with that in mind, they might actually have that experience lurking in the back of their minds. Plus, they've just said a whole load of new stuff, stuff about family members that they've never said before, this time with all the names thrown in there. They've said it about William. They've said it about Kate. They've said it about Camilla. Camilla is also being, uh, you know, it's not just Charles's coronation. It's actually the coronation of the king and queen consort. Um, and, you know, they might actually have some royals who are supportive of them, particularly Beatrice and Eugenie. Um, but also the wider family. I'd be really interested to know where people like Zara Tyndall, uh, Peter Phillips, uh, Prince Edward and Sophie, the Countess of Wessex, where all, the, all, all of these family members come down. It's entirely possible that there is animosity towards Harry for spare that extends beyond the kind of core of the royals who get mentioned in it, i.e. Charles, Camilla, William, Kate. Um, so there's that side of it. There's all the kind of interpersonal royal family relations. But then there are also some quite specific emotional things as well. So I guess the most obvious one is probably that this is Harry's father and he might just actually genuinely just want to be there to see his dad have this big moment that he's been waiting for for all his life. You know, for uh, 70 years, since Charles was a very, very young boy, he has been next in line to the throne. And he, it, it's obviously frequently mentioned, or was frequently mentioned, that the Queen was the longest serving, longest reigning monarch in British history, but Charles was also the longest reigning Prince of Wales. And yeah, I mean, you know, this is a historic moment. We haven't had a coronation since 1953. It could be decades before we have another one. And Harry might just think that this is actually a part of history and he would like to be a part of that history. Also, though, it's Archie's birthday. The coronation is happening on May the 6th and that's when Archie turns four. So that is uh, obviously unfortunate for Harry and Meghan. But also at the same time, four, you know, is quite young. A four-year-old doesn't necessarily have a really strong concept of what day of the week it is or what the date is. Um, it probably realistically would be quite easy for them to simply have a party for Archie on a different day, make a big thing out of that. And then from Archie's point of view, he would have had the experience of setting, celebrating his birthday. It wouldn't necessarily matter to him that it was technically on a different date because he's it's not like he's got a calendar that he checks day in day out and knows exactly what the date is so that's probably kind of an emotional tug for them but also one that's relatively easy to navigate around um and you know part of my thinking really on all of this is also just the kind of symbolism of not going feels a little bit like giving up on the relationship with the royals. It feels like just kind of admitting defeat and that the rift will never heal. You know, if you don't go back to Britain to see your family for the coronation, then what do you go back for? What is going to be bigger than this? I guess maybe a wedding, but George is still, you know, an elementary school age kid. Like, who is going to have an event of a scale that will actually bring Harry and Meghan back? 
they might come back to see friends, but that's not the same as seeing family members. And the thing about the royal family is that you really do have to kind of make a deliberate effort to see somebody. You have to get it in the calendar or it won't happen. Um, so, you know, going, I guess, is keeping hope alive. I have very little hope that actual progress would be made if they came to the coronation. Apart from anything else, it would be a very busy time. But to not go is to basically put your hands up and admit that it's over. Um, and obviously a lot of uh, commentators in Britain have been vocally making the point that um, going to the coronation shows that you're relevant and not going has a slight whiff of it about of irrelevance, basically. Uh, people might ask, well, if you have traded so heavily on your status as royals and are now not actually at the coronation when the king is having the biggest event of his entire life, then what relevance do you have to the future of the monarchy that is the actual foundation and bedrock of your fame? So in all of that, I think my gut feeling is that they probably will come. Um, they probably, even if they haven't made the decision, they probably know deep down that they will come and they're just waiting for the right time to actually say and on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, just a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, the world of comedy has not been kind to Harry and Meghan recently. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, regular Newsweek readers may have already picked up on this, but Harry and Meghan have recently become the target for comedians in America, and a new name can now be added to that list, and that name is Chris Rock. So... What happened? Chris Rock was recording a live show in Baltimore at the Hippodrome uh, to be broadcast on Netflix. Now, Netflix obviously is the same streaming platform that Harry and Meghan have been partnered with since 2020. It's where their um, multi-part biopic docuseries dropped Harry and Meghan um, to enormous commercial success and some criticism from, you know, kind of actual TV critics, the likes of Variety magazine and people like that. Um, but now I think it might have raised an eyebrow that this particular and quite cutting roast by Chris Rock has appeared on the very platform that they have a multi-year, multi-million dollar deal with. Um, so Chris Rock, it, it, the whole concept of the show is basically, it's called Selective Outrage and it's kind of railing against cancel culture, but also against victimhood. And people may re well remember that South Park kind of picked up on this theme as well. They um, presented Harry and Meghan as kind of perpetual victims. Um, so he that that was kind of his line and his angle, and he was actually predominantly looking back at Oprah, which I think is quite interesting, the, as in the Oprah Winfrey interview, and Meghan's uh, account of, well, we all kind of talked about it as racism at the time. Harry now says that they didn't see the comments about uh, their unborn child's skin colour as racist, but rather as unconscious bias. So Megan said concerns and conversations about her unborn child's skin colour before he was born. Chris Rock says some of this is actually not racism, it's just in-law stuff. And uh, he says even black people want to know 
what colour the baby's skin is going to be. Yeah, I, the, the fact that it's all tied to Oprah kind of makes me think that maybe Chris Rock had this material for quite a long time, maybe even quite a long time before Spare, before Netflix, and either, I mean, I guess he could have done it in smaller shows that weren't televised, or maybe he's been sitting on it and he felt that the actual tide of public opinion had swayed sufficiently that now he could bring this out. Um, He is obviously in the company of the likes of not only South Park, but other comedians like Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, um, and Saturday Night Live have done some, uh, have ripped Harry and Meghan on various occasions. So it's now becoming a thing, I think, that comedians feel that they can they can uh, make fun of Harry and, and Meghan in a way that actually really honestly did not seem possible after the Oprah Winfrey interview televised. There was, I think, a real kind of chill atmosphere throughout the media and a feeling that Harry and Meghan were victims in a genuine sense and um, therefore should be protected that feels like it is no longer the perception and people feel able to exit them, so to speak. And it was not just Chris Rock. Uh, Rebel Wilson, obviously, she is a comedian. It wasn't a kind of stand-up show of the kind that Chris Rock did, but she was a guest on Andy Cohen's show, What Happens Live. Um, And she said that uh, she bumped into Harry and Meghan in Santa Barbara. She said Harry could not have been nicer, but Meghan wasn't as warm, although she did say that actually it might have been about the fact that her mum was asking lots of slightly rude questions. I don't think deliberately rude, but just, you know, when somebody is just asking, asking things that really should not be asked, such as, where are your children? Which um, a person might be slightly protective of. I'm sure they were just with the nanny or with Doria or whatever. But that was Rebel Wilson's impression anyway. And yeah, again, I guess when it comes to celebrities, there's always a decision for a celebrity to make about whether they actually want to stick their neck out and criticise somebody especially in a context where Harry and Meghan obviously have quite active and quite mobilised social media fans and followers who do potentially kind of make a big thing out of it when somebody criticises Harry and Meghan. They feel very protective and defensive of them. And so anybody who might kind of put their head above the parapet and and, uh, take aim at the Sussexes is likely to ha- get a little bit of backlash for doing that. And what I guess I'm trying to say is that the bigger narrative with all of this stuff that's happening with US comedians, Rebel Wilson's obviously Australian, but the, the rest are American, um, is that I guess the gloves have come off and people don't feel that it's a bad thing to criticise them anymore. People feel, I suppose, like they will have enough friends and enough support from wider American society that it now becomes possible when previously it wasn't. So what does it all mean for Harry and Meghan going forward? I mean, where do they go from here? Do they have to be worried about this? Does it matter? Maybe it's fine, you know, maybe it's fine to just be, uh, have, you know, the mick taken out of you or be mocked every now and again. Maybe it doesn't actually matter. Obviously, though, I mean, Harry has a real thing with the media and he hates being criticised by the media. And I think one thing that it's important to point out is that if the British tabloid press writes about these incidents, then to Harry, it's no longer just being made fun of by a US comedian. It's also being attacked and criticised by the UK tabloids. Like this was one of the big take homes from Spare. There are a bunch of moments in the book where Harry attributes effectively the actions of American media outlets to the British press. 
And I'm trying to like get my head around how he could have done that. I mean, some of them are really glaring. Um, you know, there was a, a whole thing about Princess Diana's speech coaching tapes being broadcast in 2004, and he, he kind of pins it all on the British media and says they learned nothing from her death. Um, but slightly awkwardly for Harry, this was actually broadcast by NBC in 2004. It wasn't broadcast in Britain until years later. But I, I'm trying to work out like how Harry could have made such a glaring mistake. And my thinking is that probably what happened is he just, anything that he sees reported in the British media, he feels is the British press, the tabloid press, the same press who contributed to the death of Princess Diana, attacking him and coming for him in the way that they did for his mother. And so in that respect, yeah, sure, it may be Saturday Night Live, it may be Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon, it may be Chris Rock, it may be Rebel Wilson... But if all of these people are being reported on by the Daily Mail or maybe by the Sun, then to Harry, it's also the British tabloids. And so I suppose in that sense, it kind of does potentially matter if it matters to him, if he finds it triggering in the way that he clearly does with a lot of the media coverage. So where do they go from here? I would say, and I've kind of said this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's still true. I think it would be really nice to see Harry and Meghan back out on the red carpet or doing charity galas or volunteering. We saw them do some of this stuff in their kind of early days in America, even during the pandemic when it, there was very little prospect of, of leaving the house for any reason. Um, but they were going door to door, handing out food parcels to people or, uh, or, or similar kind of food packages to kids who, who were in need. Also, do they would do? They did a lot on Zoom with charities at the time, but all of that charity stuff has wound down a lot. It's not that they've done none of it at all. They have done some, and even since Spare and the publicity blitz around it, but I can't recall the last time that they were physically at a charity function, a charity event, shaking hands, chatting to people, uh, visibly being photographed, visibly helping people. Um, also, like any time that they get on the red carpet, I mean, Megan looks fantastic on the red carpet. I'm, you know, she appear in a, you know, a glamorous dress like this. Stuff, it's the old school royal playbook. And maybe that's kind of why they're not doing it. Perhaps from Harry's point of view, this is exactly what he was trying to get away with. The kind of click, click, click of cameras as you appear at an event. But it does kind of work. <laughs> like, it honestly does. Um and this is this would do two things. One, I think it would genuinely warm people to Harry and Meghan again. Two, it would fill the vacuum that is left after the kind of storm of spare. You know, we've been in the calm after the storm where there's still kind of an appetite to discuss things, but no longer... You know, you can't, if you have so much of Harry's version of events, then once that storm has passed, you have to have something else. And so the bigger the, the first wave of the storm, the more that the something else can sometimes wind up being the other side of the story. It can wind up being more critical because it is railing against the thing that people feel they've had too much of. So this would be a way to get Harry and Meghan back out there, but in a way that doesn't just go back to telling the same story over and over again. Yeah, it's kind of like on and off. It's either Harry no holds barred, bearing his soul, taking a swing at the palace or at William or at Charles or at Camilla, or it's total radio silence. And in that vacuum, you know, other voices start to pop up, set giving a different narrative. Uh, for people who aren't diehard fans, I think some of the oversharing can perhaps be, you know, that people are starting to experience fatigue with it. Um, they're starting to get a little bit exhausted 
And so I think really the extent to which they can revisit the Royal Rift is limited and instead they've got to go back to their original relationship with the public, which was built around philanthropy, around giving back and around service. Now, on that note, I'm going to take another quick break. But before I do, just a reminder to please follow me on Twitter at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, Prince Harry has been sitting down with a therapist, but not his therapist. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, Prince Harry did a live interview with Gabor Maté, uh, who is a trauma specialist over the weekend. This was to promote Spare, and it was very much Harry's emotional world and particularly his upbringing. It really did feel like a conversation with a therapist, um, and the UK press have obviously presented this as a fresh assault on the monarchy. Um, a lot of the interview was not a million miles away from what went into spare, to be completely honest about it. But obviously, I mean, you know... <laughs> I think the media, the British media were always going to present it as an attack on the monarchy. However, I suppose there were some bits that probably would sit uncomfortably with the royals and maybe bits that were kind of new, although related to stuff that's in the book. So, for example... Uh, Gabo Mate, uh, said he talks about how the Queen didn't hug Charles. This is kind of a famous example from the annals of royal history. She, Charles and, uh, Queen, the Queen and Prince Philip went off on a royal tour of the Commonwealth. This was shortly after she became Queen. It was a six-month tour, I think, and so she was away for a really, really, really long time. Charles must have been about three, I think, at the time, maybe three or four. Um, and, yeah, she came back, and rather than um, hug him, she shook his hand, which... You know, I mean, I think any parent out there would feel very sorry for Charles in that situation. And most parents would hug their kid after being away for so long. What's quite interesting, though, about the way it was dealt with in the interview is Mette said even animals hug their children. And I suppose that particular assessment um, might stick in the stick in the teeth a little bit for royal family members. I mean, yeah, I think they probably wouldn't like being compared to animals. Um, but, you know, uh, beyond that, it was a lot of the same stuff. Harry talked about doing different drugs. He said he did cocaine. He didn't like it very much. He did it socially. He found marijuana helped with his mental health. Um, his preferred drug, it sounds like, is um, ayahuasca, which is uh, from South America. And it's actually 
part of is actually quite a big part of the culture of certain South American tribes, um, and but also is very kind of popular, I suppose, in uh, kind of. I don't want to say hippie because that feels slightly unkind, but I suppose like maybe what was a kinder way to say hippie, I suppose kind of lefty socially conscious communities of people who do like experimenting with hallucinogenic drugs in order to expand their minds. But that caused a little bit of a stir. I can kind of see why I actually had my honeymoon in Peru, which, um, and there was a tour guide who told, he went deep into the Amazon jungle and he's kind of one of the few privileged people who gets to actually meet the tribes of the Amazon jungle. They have very little contact with human beings, quite rightly. Um, But he, you know, he had a kind of outreach role where he did go and spend time um, with them, and so he took ayahuasca in the context of tribal ceremonies, um, and he spoke very positively about those experiences. But he also had another experience in the company of, um, I think he said, like I don't know if they were tourists, but Spanish people who came to Peru and put on wanted to put on their own ceremony. So he went to it, and he suddenly started fretting and getting quite upset and angry with them because he felt that they were appropriating Peruvian culture. And this then coloured his experience after he took these hallucinogenic drugs. Uh, And he said that he, in the end, uh, it went on for hours and it was incredibly horrible. And in the end, he was um, looking, yeah, well, in the end, he was looking, he he started having quite serious thoughts in the direction of self-harm. Um, so it is a drug that by the sound of it can go very badly wrong Um, I think you know this guy had had some positive experiences he also had that one incredibly negative experience that could have gone horribly horribly wrong Um, so I can understand why people might want to give two sides of that particular story Um, but also I suppose you know the other thing about all of this it was a really long chat and it went on it went on over the hour that was allotted to it and some of it was really going over stuff that is there in black and white in a, this 400 page book and some of what's in there and some of what was talked about is heartbreakingly tragic Harry's feelings of loss around Princess Diana's death some of it's very dramatic you know the fights with Prince William um, some of it might be a little bit gratuitous as well Prince Harry and his frostbite stories for example and Gabor Mate himself said he had he had absolutely no interest in the kind of psychodrama the soap opera of Harry's relations with the royal family um, but I was yeah I mean I was kind of just thinking like, does Harry have an end game here? Like, is all this going to stop at some point? Or is this now basically what Harry does? Um, I've kind of been asking myself this question for probably a couple of years. Um, and maybe I'm just starting to come to the feeling that maybe Harry actually just isn't ever going to stop and that this is going to continue and continue and continue. Um, and the reason I ask is because, obviously, if Harry doesn't stop talking about private things relating to his family, then that really probably does mean that his relationship with his family is dead and buried because they're not going to patch it up if they think that Harry's just going to continually talk about private things publicly for the whole time. Now, some people hearing me say that might think about everything else, that they, they're quite happy for the relationship to end. Some people, if they don't like other royal family members, might think, good, you know, let it end, let the relationship die. 
Um, other people might think they want Harry to keep opening up and talking about all you know private things relating to the royal family because they want to hear it. You know, they just either because they're just interested or because they think Harry's right and his family are wrong. Other people might be pleased to see the relationship end because they hate Harry and Meghan um, and love the royal family and and don't don't want them involved anymore. But I think most people that I bump into just think that this whole situation is extremely sad. And the question that I get asked more than any other is, will Harry and William ever put their differences behind them and just repair? And in that vein... Part of me does kind of hope that at some point we can move to a new phase where we're not just always talking about Harry's kind of emotional experience of the breakdown, traumatic and difficult though it was. And some of what Harry's had to say is fair enough. Other things I think I do, in all honesty, think are incredibly one-sided. But also, like, when are we going to see... Harry and Meghan kind of blossom into uh, the new version of themselves that leaves the past behind and just looks to the future. Well, I I don't know, (laughs) but I hope soon. And with that, that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Uh, Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston and thank you for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.